Welcome back to 21st Century Women, a podcast created to find and share the stories of fabulous women doing fabulous things. Today's episode, we are speaking with Kristen, Kristen Boschmer, CEO of Bastion State, Bastion Collective's creative agency. She is here to talk with us about the information bubble or the so-called filter bubble. Welcome, Kristen, to 21st Century Women. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. First of all, what is the information bubble? What is it? Who is in it? And in fact, are we all in it? <laughs> Good question. Um, I'd say that if you think about um, your life and where you get your information from, often we can be in, sometimes this is called the echo chamber, where um, your opinions, your views and the information that you get are um, a reflection of things that you already know because you seek out and associate people like you. Um, and where this is compounded, I guess, is on social media and on digital channels because there are algorithms that um, Facebook, um, Twitter uh, and even Google use to make sure that you get the information that is most relevant to you. So let's say, for example, um, a really uh, micro example of that would be advertising where let's say I was really obsessed with ice cream just for example, and I go to an ice cream website and then you'll notice, um, I'm sure, uh, you've had this experience where you get chased around the internet with ads from that ice cream website um, reminding you to buy their ice cream, right? So that's, uh, I suppose, something that we've all experienced to give you an example of the information bubble. So let's take it away from advertising and apply it to news or opinion or even so-called facts. And imagine if your whole world is made up of just the things that will appeal to you because you've told an algorithm that that's what you like. That's what the information bubble is. So effectively, it's a, it's a state of intellectual isolation and you're surrounding yourself with all the things that you like and it's quite repetitive, right? Yeah. How dangerous is it? Well, look, I think that's an interesting way of phrasing the question because I think there's a couple of things to think about. One is this so-called democratisation of media. And what that means is that, you know, it used to be that the people that um, had the media were people that owned TV stations, radio stations and bought ink by the barrel. Um, and they were, they were the ones that spread the facts. Then the digital age came along and all sorts of people, you and me included, suddenly had a voice and we had a way of um, sharing our opinion and sharing news, quote-unquote news, uh, as it appeared to us. So I people talk about the democratisation of news and media. I don't actually think that's right. I think what's actually happened is that we've just given a whole lot of people a louder and a more easily accessible, you know, megaphone and that's it because not a lot of it is actual news and not a lot of it is actual opinion. Some of it is just um, really speaking from the heart and that's great but there's not a lot of thought that's gone into perhaps what our, our, our um, friends spread on social media and that's okay but it's not necessarily news or opinion. So the danger is that we can't tell the difference 
And the danger is, is that if you're in um, a information bubble, that someone will put something out there and you will assume that it is news, whereas in fact it's not. That's the danger. So where that's really important is if we're talking about perhaps election campaigns, where um, perhaps we're talking about, um, you know, Hillary Clinton being guilty of X, Y, Z, whereas in fact, um, you know, having her emails on a, on a backup server um, is it was spread as being, you know, that she was shifty, whereas in fact um, those emails were released uh, to journalists and then released to an re- internal review committee and there was nothing on there that was dodgy. But in the lead-up to the election campaign, it was uh, spread to look as though she was doing something shifty or dodgy. So it's that kind of stuff that we have to be really careful about knowing the difference between real news and quote-unquote fake news. Like you said, we have... Yes, I can be a news reporter, essentially, because I can put my opinion out there. And so I could look at it and go, that's great. Everybody can have their opinion. They can get their ideas. And I think that the idea of sharing your opinion and thought is brilliant. However, when you think about it from the information bubble and people sharing their opinions based on just what they're getting thrown at them and what they're seeing they're not actually sharing anything new or groundbreaking it's just repeating the same old shit that they see every day yes um there's a thing called confirmation bias and that means that essentially you put your opinion out there and because you're in an information bubble or an echo chamber uh, everyone around you agrees with what you say so therefore it becomes true in your mind. Um, So, uh, again, another example taking it out of social media would be if you go to the hairdresser and um, the hairdresser does a new style and you're sitting there going, oh, I'm really not sure about this, but four other hairdressers in the salon walk past and go, that looks amazing. Wow, you look 10 years younger. That's amazing. In my case, (laughs) that's what you're going for. Um, And then you get home and your partner goes, what the hell have you done? So in the salon, there was a whole lot of basically confirmation bias going on where you're persuaded or you think, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, this is great because so many people in that security and comfort of that salon have told you how great your hair is. And then all of a sudden you get out and you get to a point where someone whose opinion really matters um, or a bigger, louder voice says to you, no, 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 that's not right. It's a real jolt to the system. It can be really upsetting. Why does someone's opinion who means, you know, when you said someone's opinion who means more, why does that happen? Why do we care what someone thinks more than someone else. Yeah, so I think it's um, probably about um, uh, proximity and trust, but sometimes it can be just about a bigger, louder voice. So I'll give you an example. Um, There was a a country town in the United States. I'm going to say Arkansas, but I can't really remember. So sorry if you've got global listeners (laughs) and it wasn't Arkansas, I apologise. But it was... um, Basically, uh, a really small country town and there was um, a school and they wanted to have their prom. And there was a a girl, we'll call her Casey, in the school who wanted to take her same-sex girlfriend uh, to the prom and Casey wanted to wear a tuxedo um, and basically they wanted to have a same-sex date. Now, uh, 
everyone in sitting here listening to this, or not everyone, but I would imagine most people listening to your podcast would go, yeah, of course. Like, of course you should have kids at that age who've got the courage to stand up and go, I'm gay, should have the opportunity to bring their same-sex partner to the prom. But that wasn't the case in um, very uh, right-leaning, Christian, uh, very conservative Arkansas. And so um, essentially the school said, no, you're not allowed to bring your girlfriend. So Casey, feisty fighter that she was, took it to, I don't know, let's say the Human Rights Commission, and they said, you must absolutely allow this. This is a breach of human rights. So what the school did was they said, okay, fine, we're going to cancel the prom um, and we're going to have um, a unofficial prom uh, over here that Casey's not invited to. It's the unofficial one. It's just a gathering of people. And then um, here we go. We'll have um, this at the prom on Saturday night. Come if you want to, Casey. So Casey, her girlfriend and about three other people came to the official one on the Saturday night. And then the quote-unquote unofficial one was held the next week at a glamorous venue with all the bells and all the whistles and Casey wasn't invited to that. So... The school went, no, 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 we've complied. Um, but they got to hold on to their fundamental beliefs. Horrible. So what happened, which was kind of interesting in all of this, I mean, that's just, you know, in my mind, disgraceful and small-minded, but the kids started a Facebook page called, um, you know, Casey, whatever her name is, Casey Jones should just stop whining. And it was a hate page devoted to Casey and her whining and the fact that she had caused trouble by asserting her individual human rights. She'd caused trouble and inconvenienced them all. So what was interesting... Horrendous. It is so horrendous. But what was interesting about that, right, was that it was an open page. And so the world and, um, you know, let's, let's say, um, you know, New York found out about it and suddenly it hit the news and that Facebook page remained open. And so suddenly these teenagers from, you know, little town Arkansas started to receive global criticism. And suddenly the world jumped into this Facebook page and went, how dare you, you, this, that and the other, and go, Casey, and et cetera. So the pendulum really swung. Now, what was really interesting about that was that suddenly the criticism from the world in, the, in terms of, you know, Facebook and the sheer numbers, like here are these kids who just wanted to be hateful towards a, a, a gay girl, were suddenly receiving tens of thousands of angry messages every hour from around the world and it was their wake-up call. Now, a whole lot of people are sort of saying that now there's a thing in philosophy called um, epistemic closure, which is essentially that what humans do is they know one thing half well, and because they know one thing half well, they um, assume that they know the other thing really well. So suddenly, um, all of these teenagers and this little town, Arkansas, suddenly got a huge dose of reality from the rest of the world and the worst of the world went, this is not how it is. So suddenly their trust relationship got broken because they went, well, hang on a minute, is our way of life the right way of life or is that bigger 
voice, which seemed bullying to them, is this the other way of life? And so it was really interesting to watch because no one knew really which voice to trust anymore and who was the bigger bully. Was the world the bigger bully? Were these teenagers the bigger bully? Was the human rights the bigger bully? Was the school the bigger bully? And that sort of, I suppose, that little relationship there is a perfect example of where we can get shocked when we open up our world and we hear a different point of view. That was a really long story, sorry. Yeah, but it was really interesting. What ended up happening to Casey and the page and did they come around or what happened? Um, no, they shut it down and, and there's all sorts of media commentary about it and one of the things was that um, people found uh, interesting about it was that the kids um, apparently on this page, their big point was, um, shut up, Casey, stop being such a whinger whiner, right? That was the point of the page is all of these, you know, kind of um, left-leaning media commentators were, were saying. I have a different point of view. I think that they knew that if they put up a page saying these teenagers are very media, social media savvy, they knew that if they put up a page saying, you know, um, Casey Jones is a um, lesbian and we hate her, that that page would be taken down by Facebook, right? So those kids got around the rules of Facebook and they made it about Casey Jones stop whining um, in order to have a voice to vent their hate because they, you know, they were sneaky and they knew the rules. I don't think... It was as the media commentators said. Um, anyway, uh, essentially, uh, I think she ended up staying at school and you know graduating and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what she's doing now, but I think it's a really interesting uh, case study of yeah, whose voice is the one that you pay attention to. So, I mean, in that situation, you would argue that they have been influenced by the world, and maybe they weren't, but you would think it's the whole entire world and they're waking up with thousands and thousands of messages saying what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. That's something that comes up all the time. So all of a sudden these young kids go, well, hold on a minute. I'm No doubt they would feel somewhat emotion in and around feeling guilty or... Um, you know, feeling bad and sorry for Casey. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just assuming here. But I guess where I want to get to is what about in massive, massive global issues or elections when we talk about political elections and you spoke before about the Trump and Hillary election? How do we, how does the globe or a country or a huge amount of people influence your opinion? But more so when you look at an election where Trump got elected, and that was more reassurance on what people thought. And it just kept reassuring that what Trump was doing was right and what he said he would do was right. And they just kept consuming that. And they never looked at the option with Hillary, for example. So I guess my question is, in massive, massive, you know, massive topics or political movements or elections, how does the information bubble influence these big, big issues? So... Let's say, for example, we'll use the Facebook example, right? Um, let's say that as a political strategist, um, I know that there's a whole lot of people who are sitting in Central America, as it were, Central United States, I should say, who feel disenfranchised, um, overlooked and forgotten by the previous administration, which is exactly kind of politically what happened. So let's say that I know that those people are feeling disempowered and they're feeling angry and upset and that their voice doesn't matter anymore. 
So what I can do and what kind of happened is that I can target those people on a, um, a basically a geographical level and then I can target those people with information and emotion that makes them feel even more riled up and then I can give them information about how, um, if you like, Trump is going to assuage their rage. So it's the old problem-solution dynamic. You know, the weight loss industry makes people, you know, women in particular feel shit about being fat and, you know, puts it out there that, you know, fatness is like the shame of all shames and then they come in and go, but guess what? We are the white knight, we are the solution, we are the ones to make you... I mean, this is a billion-dollar case study, right? So similarly, we rile people up, we know that they feel disempowered, we put information and news stories into their thread um, that show them how they've been ignored and then we swoop in and we show them that someone's listening and that person is, for example, Trump. So that's how it's done. That's what um, basically uh, politically savvy people do. I'm just going to change topic a little bit. Go on. <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> on my time, I spent some time in the, the Australian Army and I was put in, um, you know, by basic training, I was put in training with a whole heap of people, 50 people, and of which there was probably one in there who I would be friends with in the outside world. Yep. And I got there and I think I was in tears the first night going, why the hell am I here? What have I done? Who are these people? How am I going to become friends with them? And over time I did and they they became really close friends. I mean, we went through a lot of challenge, challenges and adversity together. So it, it created a bond and we became quite close. Are we lifelong friends now? No, we are not. But this is my question. We surround ourselves with similar people who become our friends, right? Same thing at work. Who we hire at work, is it a reflection of ourselves and are we surrounding ourselves with the same kind of people? I know you've got a you know, couple of ideas in and around this. Um, so I'd love to get some light on the friendship but also on a business world and who we hire. I think um, what you've just outlined with your army experience is um, really quite common and often what we do is as human beings, like we are as animals, we're pack animals, right? Um, And so we learnt from our caveman times um, to either hunt together because we've got a bigger chance of um, pulling down the woolly mammoth if there's seven of us um, or gather together because um, we can harvest more um, herbs and medicine if we work together and form a tribe right so what we often do as a a group is go through you know you've heard of the sort of the forming norming storming part of groups or the forming storming norming that's it forming storming norming (laughs) (laughs) where groups um come together and then there's some upheaval either at a personal level or a group level where the rules are made and then the new rules and ways of behavior become the norm and so we're adaptive and so what you went through um in the first night of crying into your pillow your poor little thing <laughs> lucky it was probably khaki so <laughs> no one could see the tears. piece of cardboard <laughs> <laughs> no, it, wasn't. it was a piece of cardboard <laughs> no, <it wasn't. laughs> I was like, this is a street army <laughs> um so uh yes yeah, so um 
uh, that was kind of like that um, forming stage where you were like, what the hell have I done? <laughs> Awful. And then there was probably, I would think, if you look back, some sort of a, um, a storming thing where there, maybe there was either um, internal conflict or, in fact, the physical challenges that you were going through was you know, the bonding conflict that drew you all together and then that became the norm and you all kind of moved through as a gang. So um, that's really an interesting model to look at in the workplace and um, I'm really big on, um, I'm not sure if other employers are, but I'm really big on making sure that I don't hire people who are just a reflection of me. Um, I think uh, that people have to fit in um, and they have to sort of be nice. Um, so um, I'm not saying I'm always nice, but <laughs> wait, <laughs> cut. <laughs> what, I, what I mean is I suppose that they've got to show that they have some social skills, right? Um, and, you know, I know Bastion's really, really big on that. We, you know, have a process where the end point is a presentation to a larger group and everyone's sort of sitting there not really listening to to the content but everyone's well they are sorry if you're about to apply for a job at Bastion <laughs> um, but what they're really doing is looking at is this person going to be a good fit for the organisation now what's interesting with that is that you don't want I don't want to surround myself with yes people so I'll chuck um, uh, our creative director Jim into the the fray here. Sorry, Jim. Um, but when he first joined, um, he came in and just challenged the hell out of everyone, right? And just pointed at a whole lot of things within Bastion, and, and quite frankly said, you know, that's shit. I'm like, okay, you'd probably find another way to say it, but <laughs> um, and it really riled everyone up. And I think that a mature organisation or a mature person should be able to stand back from that and go either, shit, he's right, or, okay, I'm going to hear that point, assess it and work out which bits to take on or challenge back and go, what do you mean by that? Can you expand on it? But I think often what happens when we uh, hire people and I look around organisations that I consult to and, and go in and look at is that there is a, a homogeny that um, exists in a lot of organisations where we uh, potentially hire people who fit into the echo chamber and will reflect back to us um, what we want to see, hear and feel. And I get it perhaps with bigger bureaucracies I think that's right I think that sometimes it's easier to have that going on but where I think agencies need to be really careful is that our jobs in a way are to work with and support our clients but our jobs aren't to agree with our clients and if we're walking into every meeting saying to our clients you know yeah sure that's a brilliant idea what are we there for you know, so I think our job is to perhaps challenge our clients and make sure that we're always doing the right thing for the objective and the target audience, not the right thing for whatever suits the political situation internally, for example. How do you do that, though? I mean, that can be really hard because especially if you're tendering for a pitch or working on something and you're challenging them, but you still want to win the business... Mm. How do, if, where's the balance? How do you get that? It's really tricky. Um, what I tend to do, first of all, um, I tend to not do the challenge bit at the pitch stage. 
Um, I think that that's probably not right. Um, I think that uh, at the pitch stage, you're probably establishing your credentials. Um, But what I tend to do really weirdly is I try and read the room and I try to work out, it sounds silly, but I try to work out if people are rational or emotional. That's the first category. And if they are rational leading, so, for example, I'm talking to um, a client who is a group of accountants, for example, even if they're in the marketing department, they've learnt to become rational marketers because they're in a rational environment. So, therefore, my way of dealing with them will be really rational and I'll talk to them about the flow of ideas and the objectives and the numbers and the likely measurable outcome as a way of talking to them through the challenge or the idea. Whereas if someone is um, more emotional leading, uh, then the way that we deal with that is with empathy. So uh, it's about that kindness and that connection. And it's not manufactured, it's just, you know, how it is. But you would be talking to that client and saying, okay, tell me what it is that you're trying to uh, achieve here. Yeah, I get that. That must be really difficult for you. Am I able to put a different perspective to you just now? Awesome. So the thing that I think is X and the reason for that is Y, how do you feel about that? Cool. Could we work with you through that situation so that we can see an alternative view? Awesome. That'd be great, right? So it's all supportive and listening and empathy because ultimately at the end of the day, most people want to do a good job. Most people want the right outcome. They just need a little bit of different help to get there. But it is tough. It is tough. I find at the moment it's because everything is measured. It's very hard to take a leap of faith and to do something new and it can be scary to put your name on and go, yeah, that's what I did and hope it works. Yeah. How do you help them take that leap of faith? It's really, that's such a good point. There are so many people who, I had someone work for me once, it was like this and um, she was a scared marketer. She was scared to actually release a campaign because she wasn't really sure what would happen. Um, And I just had to work really carefully with her about that you've got to have a bit of a thick skin and uh, we've got to champion the work internally and we have done our maths on this and we've got to stand by the work because at the end of the day that's what you've got to do as a marketer or any professional is have the ability to stand by the work and if it's wrong have the ability to actually own that and I'd have to say that's one of the things I really admire about um, Ferg and Jack and Suze and so many of the leadership team here at Bastion is they're not afraid to own up to a mistake and they're not afraid to have a go and I just freaking love that there's not actually many organizations I've worked for where the people at the top will stand up and go yep you know what we made a mistake but we learned a lot from it Mm. and I really love that so I think giving people the power to own their mistakes is really important in corporate Australia and there's not enough of that absolutely I agree so we've spoken a lot in and around uh, the people we surround ourselves how we conduct how we provide information to other people what about ourselves and habits 
our habits we make ourselves and our information snacking. So where we check our emails 17 times a day but not actually do anything about them. Yeah. Or on Instagram, you know, I don't even know the stats. I'm sure you do. We check it all day long. It's a waste of time. Every time I do it, I regret it. <laughs> it's annoying. I go on my phone because I think I need to look at a text message and I don't even know but I'm in Instagram scrolling and I get pissed off at myself and I put it down again. I guess I want to know... Why do we do this and how do we stop doing it? <laughs> Help me. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, so I was like you. So, I mean, really, my career has been a mixture of traditional marketing and digital and social media, right? And more recently, digital and social media. So, um, I was in this information whirlwind daily and I reckon I was getting information burnout and... Again, uh, one of the amazing things that has happened at Bastion is there's been a development of this thing called the Bastion Degree. So um, you go away and you learn about um, EQ, um, emotional intelligence. You set all these goals and you face some uncomfortable truths about yourself and cry um, and have pick fights with your colleagues and then go and get drunk together. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves each other. Um, it's actually changed my life, actually. It's been really powerful and I'm not one of those. I don't say that very often. I'm, you know, I'm just not a, eh, it's changed my life kind of person, but it really has. Anywho, what I realised when I was doing the degree was that I was in this shallow, sort of meaningless, um, comparative, often mean and fighty um, social media vortex. So um, what I did, which has really helped, is I decided to use social media as a way of getting information from the world and that the way that I would catch up with friends is face-to-face. <laughs> And um, so I only use Facebook now for work where I want to find out, you know, strategically what's what. Um, I use Messenger a lot when I travel to keep my friends abreast of where I am in the world, particularly if I'm going somewhere dangerous. Um, And then um, I use Instagram in a similar way and I absolutely curate my feed. So I make sure that I follow um, a whole lot of creative types, um, uh, anyone that's interested in, um, you know, developing uh, art and thinking and creativity I follow on Instagram in particular. Um, And then one of the best things that I've done and and Twitter I look at for, you know, a whole lot of funny things and, you know, bon mot and um, thinkers and creators. But one of the best things that I do um, and I've decided to do is look at uh, Reddit because I just love Reddit and the way that it's structured. And why I love it is because um, I can curate my feed and pick and, and pick the things I'm interested in. So I follow, um, you know, animals being derps, um, animals being bros. Um, <laughs> uh, um, derps is when animals poke their tongues out. <laughs> um, power washing porn. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so good watching a bit of concrete getting cleaned. Um, Renaissance art. Um, uh, um, history and photographs, a whole lot of stuff that just makes my brain fizzle with excitement. But then what I do is then I go into popular and news. And what's great about that is that popular is what the rest of the world has upvoted. So it's not the stuff that I'm interested in and it's not anything I would ever look at normally, but 
it's pretty interesting to see what the rest of the world's in, involved in, right? So there's stuff in there about gaming, like as in e-gaming, that is not my bag. And, you know, sometimes we get emails about avant gaming and I'm like, I don't even know what language you're talking, right, internally. But I force myself to look at it because I need to be a part of it. And then the other thing I do is uh, go out into the world and I make sure that I have, at least once a month, I go and have breakfast or brunch at a place I would never normally go to. So I go to another suburb, whether it be you know middle class, lower class, working class, I don't care. I go there because I want to see what the people are up to and I want to challenge my view of my world and my bubble. And I just say to everyone, like, make sure you engage with the world. Right, like, what are those people doing? I love airports. I love an airport, mainly because I'm going somewhere exciting. <laughs> but I just love looking at the people going, what are they up to? What? Who are they? This morning, you know, there was a guy riding a bike in front of me and he was taking up the whole road. And rather than getting road rage with him, um, I was just cruising along behind him and I just made up a whole story about him. I'm like, you know, he had pink sneakers and I'm like, oh, that's Derek. He's a programmer. He's on his... Like, just, keep going, keep going. Uh, his name was Derek and he's a programmer and every day for lunch he has um, a cheddar cheese sandwich. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just felt he had, he had one in his bag. Um, and he had a cat named Sophie and um, a girlfriend named Beck. And he's just a quiet, gentle soul. And um, on the weekends, he really enjoys watching movies, but his secret passion is badminton. Like I was just <laughs> sitting there cruising this. behind him going, oh, there's Derek. Have a nice day at work, Derek. You know, now I have no idea if that. <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine Derek, phone in, phone in now, get in contact. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, we've got Derek. But... <laughs> But it's just like taking an interest in your fellow man, you know, and even if it's not true, just being interested in what they're wearing, why they're doing it. We speak about the information bubble and all of these things. So basically to get out of your information bubble or just grow your information bubble so you're not just, you know, feeding your own feed with the same stuff, every pop it. Go and like, I mean, you mentioned before, go and like rappers and like all sorts of different things that you are not into but just expose yourself to yep. anything and everything yep. so that you're not in a little bubble. I follow um, the NRL, uh, the uh, NBA, um, LeBron Dr- James, um, Stephen Curry, uh, some rapper, a female rapper who's very Christian um, and says God bless everyone, MC Hammer, um, just a whole lot of people on Twitter who really uh, – nothing in in their life um uh but i listen to even on um podcasts i'll listen to two dope queens um and then a whole lot of you know art history true crime um you name it just to try and make sure that i'm across what's happening in society and then i'm checking my white privilege and that i'm um just aware of what's going on um because i don't want to be in my own little middle-class white bubble in when we've got it so good in Australia like if you are white and you're middle class and you're born in Australia you are in the top two percent luckiest people in the world and after traveling I remember I was in Africa and I was in Botswana and I visited all these people and they were just they were eating pup which is just boiled maize and 
I just I'll never forget they were sitting opposite the international airport in Botswana watching planes come and go all day to places that they'll never be able to afford to go to and sitting there and eating boiled maize for their main... I could cry thinking about it as their main meal. And I just, you know, I was giving them every single piece of money I had and all I left them with my medical kit and most of my clothes and I was like, yeah, more of me. And um, just, the yeah, the irony of these poor people just watching those planes come and go. And I just thought, you know, I felt white guilt you know I got on the plane I'm like Jesus like I'm so lucky and I just made a vow to myself to not feel guilty about my privilege but to never abuse it never assume that I know best because of where I'm born and to listen uh, taking other positions but also I suppose to not feel guilty about my luck but to celebrate it and to honour the blessings, really, that we have by being born where we are and who we are, to honour those blessings by truly celebrating them and not taking them for granted. And, you know, I, I volunteer and I give money and I tithe and I do all of those things, and that's all great. But at the end of the day, I often think those things are for us. You know, we do those things to assuage our middle-class guilt, and that's fine as long as someone benefits <laughs> at the end of the day. But I just made that vow after having that experience to just not settle for my privilege but to try and share whatever I can. And I'd just say that's really important for everyone is, you know, pop the information bubble that you're in and put yourself in uncomfortable positions so that A, you can appreciate how good that you've got it and B, to challenge yourself to not rest on those laurels because at some point we've all you know, stormed, formed and normed our way into our little comfortable bubble and that's great, but just celebrate it, challenge it and share. There's a term that you've used um, that is very familiar with millennials and I don't think they use it in the way that we will talk about it. The term fully woke. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How can you apply this to popping the information bubble? Well, this is the last question. Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, woke is about being like aware, right? And so aware of what's going on in society. So I suppose enlightened is another way, but it's really aware. So if you're woke, it's like um, you're understanding racial issues and um, tension and what's going on with, you know, perhaps the, um, you know, the putting down of people, etc. right? So if you are woke, it means that you're across it all, not just your part of it, not just your kind of, middle-class bubble and you know the person who it sounds sounds weird but someone who really held the mirror up to all of that in a funny way was Borat right (laughs) (laughs) where he went into all of these incredible situations and were that were full of people who were in a bubble a comfortable bubble and he just went in there and popped it in the most disrespectful 
um, terrible way and it was uncomfortable to watch but <laughs> hilariously funny at times. Um, and he started kind of that thing of challenging a lot of white middle-class people to really look at ourselves and expand what we do. Um, so, yeah, being woke is about, I suppose, being aware and forcing yourself to be aware. And I, I, I feel like this is probably politically incorrect to say, but oh well. I feel like, you know, Donald Trump is here for a reason globally and spiritually. And I think hopefully what he can do, as we saw with Robert De Niro saying, you know, fuck Trump um, recently at the CAPC Awards, I think it was, um, I think he's galvanising and I think what he is doing is forcing those of us who have a voice and those of us who are privileged to come together and fight against um, that kind of um, uh, unreasonable, tyrannical reign that is about isolationism and it's about um, jingoistic patriotism and all sorts of stuff. So I think... Let's get woke. Let's get woke together, but also put it to a good cause. To a good cause, which is about you know sharing and inclusion, and making sure that the people that need our help get it. Yeah, I think it's our new tagline. I think you're fully woke. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm today. I've had coffee. <laughs> <laughs> One last question: a quote or a meme that you live by, might have created or inspired. Mine is so hackneyed and ham-fisted but it is completely actually I've got an embarrassing story about it Go for but it. I'll tell you what it is and then I'll tell you the embarrassing story but um yeah so mine is be the change you want to see in the world and um we all know that that is Mahatma Gandhi said that but <laughs> um recently I was presenting to not just a client but the entire staff and my job was to rally the staff to embrace the new brand position and live the brand values. And no pressure. I, yeah, that, that was fine. But I freaking ended the presentation with that quote, which I love and I have actually needle pointed. This is how much I love this quote. With a freaking picture of Nelson Mandela. saying the one Oh, so ashamed. And the CEO came. Luckily, you know, he took over from me and made a joke and went, was that a test? Because we all know that was going. And I looked at him and, oh, my God, I went purple <laughs> with embarrassment. And I was just like, yep, that was a test. Do you know what, though? That's only one person picking up on it, surely. No, I reckon, they, I reckon right, a lot of right. other people did. <laughs> and so, actually, it was quite funny. Um, after that, they forgave me, which is nice. But um, after that, I... Um, Every presentation I did for them, I ended with, <laughs> like, a picture of someone else with the wrong quote. <laughs> so that was quite good. But I yeah. love that. But, yeah, I just think let's, you know, if it's, it's not enough to point at something and go, that's wrong, yep. but actually change it, live it, stand up for it. 100%. Well, I certainly feel enlightened and I definitely... Woke. 
I'm fully woke. Well, yeah. I'm not yet, but I'm determined to get woke. <laughs> and uh, and I'm about to go and start following a whole heap of random people and things. Yeah, awesome. To start expanding my yeah. little bubble. So awesome. And and just one warning is uh, you will, in the beginning, end up going down rabbit holes on Google because <laughs> someone will say something and be like, oh, what's that mean? And then you'll Google that and then something else will happen. But, you know, I think all of that's fun so yeah thanks so much for having me thank you let's go get woke all right i hope you enjoyed this week's episode on 21st century women brought to you by women for women see you next time on 21st century women brought to you by john roland media productions see you